Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. This program is sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. Well, are you ready for a little Q&A with Dr. J? At a recent seminar held in Texas, Dr. Jennings collected questions written by his audience, and then he read them aloud and provided some very insightful answers to each one. He says these question and answer periods provide a wonderful insight into the minds of those searching for truth. Perhaps you'll find what the good doctor had to say beneficial to your search as well. So, we join Dr. J as he presents the first question. Let's listen. Do you believe that other intelligent beings know the difference between good and evil or just the human experience? This Bible word, no. If you hear that word and think it means cognitive awareness, you have restricted the meaning of that word by about 90 to 95%. There is a piece of cognitive awareness in the word no. But the primary meaning of this word in the Bible means an intimate familiarity with. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave a son. It doesn't mean even the physical consummation of a love relationship. That's not what it's talking about. It is a knowing of experience to the deepest levels of your soul. That's why this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and thou sent. God did not want them to know in their being evil. It's not that he didn't want them to know about evil. God came and informed them about the rebellion. He were informed about that if they eat of this tree, they're going to die. They were cognitively informed about what evil was, but he didn't want them to experience in their being evil, to know it. Gabriel does not know what it's like to be tempted with internal lusts or addictions or cravings. or He knows cognitively as an observer, he sees the destruction and damage of sin and what it's done, but he doesn't know what sin does to his being. Does that make sense? How can I use the Bible to prove God doesn't send the plagues and the judgments? Well, I guess you have to be more precise. What plagues? Do we believe God sent the 10 plagues on Egypt? Yes, he did. And they were all judgments against the gods of Egypt, not the people of Egypt, in order to demonstrate to very primitive level one thinkers that these gods of Egypt were false. He's showing them that I'm more powerful than all these gods. I've got power. And so that's where you start in the most primitive thinking. So he brought the plagues for that purpose. I think they're meaning, though, in Revelation, the seven last plagues. And you have to put your understanding of several Bible concepts together. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And then you go down and just see why the wrath comes, because they rejected the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. And they Therefore, God took an action in verse 24, 26, and 28. God acted. And what did he do? God gave them up. God let them go. And so under the law of liberty, under design law, if you choose to persistently rebel against God, God will surrender you to your choice. That is called in Bible terms, the wrath of God. With that in mind, then you understand that the, the seven last plagues are God surrendering a rebellious world stepwise to their rebellion against him and releasing them to reap what they've chosen. And you get these terrible consequences coming as God is allowing their rebelliousness to reap its consequence and revealing to the world. I, I actually see it this way. 
The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth is the hearts and minds of men. We are the spirit temple. As billions of hearts of people harden against God, God respects that choice, and slowly his presence is being withdrawn from the earth, and slowly the four winds of strife in Revelation 7 are loosening, allowing the satanic agencies to have more freedom to act on earth. Job gives you insight that when Satan is unrestrained, he acts in ways that are destructive. And I think the seven last plagues are that process happening where people are hardening, God is withdrawing, the four winds are loosening, Satan gets more freedom, and terrible things happen on the earth. And that's how you use the Bible to do that. Some questions are being asked. There's really no evidence, all speculation, like why did earth but no other planet yield to temptation? There is no inspired revelation to the answer to that question. It's all speculative. My speculation is because my understanding of what was happening, the earth was created as a lesson book. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 that we are a theater, a lesson to angels and to men, that the earth was created to answer questions. Adam and Eve were created as God, the Father, Son, and Spirit come into unity and create beings in their image. We have this new creation of two separate beings that come into unity of love and, and procreate beings in their image. And they were created to have sovereignty over this planet unless this planet was a lesson book to give answers to the lies that Satan were telling about God and to reveal the truth. Thus, Satan targeted this planet above all other planets because this was the heavenly news site where all the heavenly beings were watching for answers and Satan wanted to corrupt those answers and so he really plied his trade here before all the other worlds in my view. That's why this planet fell and some of the others may have not have fallen. And when they saw the fall and the damage coming, they even if they had questions, they might have paused and said, you know, let's just wait a little while, see some more evidence to where we choose sides here. So the story of Jonah, didn't God send the storm? Wasn't Jonah forced to go against his own will? Please explain how that fits in the overall story and freedom and elements and so forth. Well, I love this question. This is a good question. Do you think Jonah was the only person in all of Israel that was willing to work with God? The only one. Only one person in all of Israel willing to work with God. Or were there other people that were on God's team? Do you think God knows hearts and minds? Do you think God has foreknowledge? So do you think it was an accident that God chose Jonah? Or God chose Jonah and knew exactly how Jonah was going to respond? And if you read the story, Jonah, he believed in the Lord, but he had a prejudice problem. He didn't like the people of Nineveh. He didn't. No. And when he got the message, uh, he didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent. He wanted God to wipe them out. Now, is that a godly thing in Jonah's heart? Does God love Jonah? Does God want to free Jonah from those, uh, let's say, worldly impulses? So Jonah loves God. He wants to work with God. He knows God's gracious. God loves the people of Nineveh. And so God calls Jonah and knows Jonah is going to take off to Tarshish in a ship. Boom. There he goes. God does send the storm. Jonah is not confused. At whose request does Jonah go into the water? his own. He knows what's going on. He knows. And he goes into the water. And when he goes in the water, a great fish comes and gets him. And he's three days in the belly of the fish. Do you think this gave Jonah opportunity to, to reflect? <laughs> opportunity to converse with God. You might call some deep introspection. Now, and he's on a mission for God to where again? Nineveh. Now, who was the god of Nineveh? Dagon, the fish god. 
Think about that. How did Jonah get delivered in his mission? By a fish. Bloop. Imagine here comes this guy who is delivered by a fish and they worship the fish and he says, repent. And God chose grace and then Jonah still got some issues to work through. So a vine comes up in the whole story. So I don't see God in any way violating Jonah's will. I see God, again, therapeutically intervening, making judgments about the condition of Nineveh, their hearts, making judgment about Jonah and his condition, making a judgment about the therapeutic action to take in order to bring a cascade of events in order to not only save Nineveh, but to help grow up and mature Jonah. That's what I see happening. Next question, how does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fit into design law? Is it the remedy? My understanding of the Holy Spirit is that after, and this has to understand what Christ did. When Christ took upon himself humanity, it was not a transient moment in his existence that he stepped down. You understand, God is an infinite being, and it says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that he lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? By finite beings. Finite beings cannot enter into infinity. We can't process infinite knowledge and infinite possibilities and infinite points in time. We can't do that. It's beyond us. We would be consumed and we can't enter it. It's overwhelming to us. And so God, who is love, a member of the Godhead, leaves infinity and enters linear existence, that member of Jesus. And prior to his incarnation, he would enter and leave uh, and interact with the angelic host. But at his incarnation... Jesus permanently left infinity. Understand, prior to his incarnation, he entered infinity. And infinity, not only is it all knowledge, he is aware of all points in time, past, present, and future. He lives outside what we call time. We live in a linear existence. One moment passes after the next moment after the next moment, where time flows in one direction for us. God, who creates time, lives outside it. When Christ took upon himself human flesh and became incarnate, he entered into linear existence and he never leaves it again. We cannot understand the sacrifice that he made to save us. It is an infinite, an infinite stepping down. And so Christ doesn't have those abilities as a human being that he had as the pre-incarnate son of God to enter and experience infinity anymore. So the Holy Spirit now is Christ's representative and carries out Christ's presence in all human hearts at all times. And so he said to his disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. When the Spirit comes, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Who do you think the Holy Spirit's listening to to speak? Jesus he is the representative of Christ. And so when you have the Spirit knocking on the door to your heart, that's Jesus knocking on the door to your heart. And so the Holy Spirit takes the achievements, victories of Christ and applies them in our hearts. And so my view of the indwelling Spirit is the application of Christ in the heart to cleanse our hearts and minds and restore us. So it's really the remedy is Jesus Christ being applied by the Holy Spirit. Can you speak on Romans 14.5, which says um, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind in the context of a parent-child relationship? 
Yes. I can. That point, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind, requires they have the capacity to be fully persuaded in their own mind. If they don't have the capacity to be fully persuaded in their mind, we don't persuade people in their own mind. So if it doesn't have to be a child. You have a parent with Alzheimer's dementia and cannot process and understand things anymore. You don't spend your time trying to explain to them what you're doing. You do what's best for them, and they may not understand because they don't have the ability to process. And so with children, children have limited capacities to understand depending on their age, and we explain to them according to their capacities and abilities. And as they grow, we continue to explain, and there does come a point where they gain a sense of maturation or autonomy, and at that point, then the parent stops parenting and sets free. Regardless of where the child is in their, in their spiritual journey, you cannot continue to tell your 34-year-old child that they must come to church with you each Sunday or Sabbath or whichever day you go on. You have to set them free. So you present the truth in love, and you present it in the level of the capacities of the person you're dealing with. So as you ask a lot of thought-provoking questions, is there a book where these things are addressed? <laughs> well, there's several, actually. Uh, I would recommend starting uh, with the God-shaped heart if you want the theological stuff. The God-shaped heart really probably has them mostly together in that book, but all my books really deal with many of these things. And then if you go to our website, comingreason.com, there's a whole series of lectures that I do that actually take many of these points and expound them quite more uh, deeply than I did here in these short presentations. Because the goal of this wasn't to take one point and go all the way down and deeply explore it, but was to try to put these major points together in an overall arcing, an overarching theme where you see how it all fits together in a coherent fashion. So I would tell you to use those resources, comingreason.com. Lots of free stuff there. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>